Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, hey, we are uh, continuing a sermon series that we've been in this summer where we've been looking uh, slowly, kind of verse by verse, at one of the most well-known and well-loved psalms in the Bible, Psalm 23. Uh, We've called this series, He Restores My Soul. And our hope uh, has been for this series uh, that God would indeed do that for each of us, that he would renew and restore our souls uh, over the course of this summer. You know, uh, our bodies get tired and we need rest, we need sleep. But it's true also that our souls get tired, we get weary, we get worn down, we, get, uh, we struggle with despair, we feel worn down and heavy laden with sin. And we need restoration that's deeper the mere rest of our bodies. We need a soul rest, soul renewal uh, at a deep level, a kind of a type of restoration uh, that even the best vacation can't give us, or even the, the longest Sunday afternoon nap can't touch. And so we are uh, looking at this psalm verse by verse. Today we're going to be on the fourth verse, Psalm 23, verse 4. Uh, this is actually my first sermon in this series. So many thanks to my brothers, uh, Jonathan Jones and Willie Addison, who so ably uh, opened God's Word for us uh, during my vacation. Um, but what we've been doing is pairing a verse from the psalm uh, with some other scripture uh, from elsewhere. And so today our readings will be Psalm 23, verse 4, uh, paired with a reading from 2 Corinthians, verse 4. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our first scripture reading today is Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And our second reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, and then verses 14 through 17. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, Psalm 23 uh, is, of course, the great shepherd song of Israel. It's the place uh, in the Bible where this metaphor that God relates to his people like a shepherd to a flock finds maybe its fullest expression. David takes this single metaphor and turns it a little bit at a time so that we can see every facet of what it means to relate to God as a shepherd. I say this is the fullest expression of this metaphor, uh, but that's not really true. Of course, the fullest expression of this metaphor comes when Jesus stands in front of his disciples and says, I am the good shepherd. And then it comes ultimately at the cross where we learn what it means when he said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. If you want to know what a good shepherd is, it's one who loves to the point even of death. But it's worth noting that the shepherd metaphor in the Bible is not only a divine metaphor, not only a picture of what God is like, but it was also a royal metaphor. It was meant to explain what the king was meant to be like for his people. So that God can say in 2 Samuel 5 of David, you shall shepherd my people, Israel, right? That David, his long life as a shepherd with his father's flocks, was a preparation for him to shepherd as a king the people of Israel. That the king, a good king, was meant to relate to his people, not domineering over them or in a harsh way, but gently, in a kind of fatherly protection like a shepherd leads a flock. And so David, of course, was Israel's greatest king. He was Israel's greatest shepherd. He was uh, the most powerful person, Uh, that anyone in Israel had ever known, uh, kind of having established God's uh, kingdom, his people, on firm footing. He was a righteous king for the most part. Uh, He made his mistakes. He had his sin that we'll talk about. But even David, the great shepherd of Israel, the great king of Israel, begins this psalm, how? By saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Right? David shows us that everyone needs a shepherd. That even the shepherd needs a shepherd. That even the king needs a lord. That everyone in this world needs someone to whom they look to for guidance, protection, love, care. That your soul and my soul were made to be shepherded. You are not made uh, for independence. Right? I think many, a time, many times our dream is that one day we'll get to a point in our lives where we don't need anybody. Where we can accomplish our dreams, where we can live our own lives, or we can be our own king and shepherd. And yet to do that, it misses the way that you were created. The way that we're all wired is that we need a shepherd to look to. You know, my family, I'm sure along with many of you, looked with rapt attention as Jeff Bezos, uh, the man who delivers packages to your door uh, in two days' time, right, the founder of Amazon, the richest man in the world, a man so rich that his ex-wife is now one of the top five richest people in the world, he started a space company so that he could go to space. As a little boy, he dreamed of being an astronaut. 
who doesn't. But the difference between Jeff Bezos, who dreamed of going to space, and me, or you, who dreamed of going to space, is that some, at some point, Jeff Bezos looked at himself and said, okay, I can afford it. I'm going to start, and this is a new word, a space tourism company so that I can live my dream and go to space. He was sure to go um, several meters further into space than last month's billionaire, Richard Branson, went into space so that he could have rich guy space bragging rights. I don't know what it says about the state of our world that the richest people are trying to get off of it as far as fast as they can, um, but congratulations to Jeff Bezos. There was one guy uh, who was meant to be on this ship. He bought a, space, a, a seat on the spaceship for $26 million, and then he canceled because of a scheduling conflict. That's money, right? I don't, I don't know what kind of scheduling conflict that takes. But there's a part of us that looks at that and says, see, if I had enough money, if I had enough power, my wildest dreams would be within my grasp, right? If I had enough, if I achieved a point in life, then I could achieve my dreams, I could experience peace, I could be my own boss, I could be my own king. And yet David shows us a different way that says that all of us need a shepherd. That the point of life isn't to get to a point of such independence that you can look at yourself and say, ah, I don't need anyone. The point is to find peace, to find rest under the care of one who is over you, watching over you as a shepherd looks over his sheep. Now, the first three verses of this psalm are, you can read them as a sheep bragging about how wonderful its shepherd is. Right? You can almost imagine a happy little sheep prancing over, or however sheep go, uh, to the fence line where there's a, a fence between it and another pasture, the sheep of another shepherd, and saying, let me tell you about my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, and so I don't want for anything. He makes me lie down in the greenest pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Right? You can hear this happy and content little sheep saying, what a wonderful shepherd I have. And then verse 4 takes a turn. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Right? It takes this turn from when everything is sunny and green and wonderful to an even though, even when it's dark, even when my life is under threat, even when it's hard, I still have a good shepherd. In fact, it's when it's hard that I most need a good shepherd. Right? We can almost hear in the back of this story, remember the beginning of the book of Job, where Job, the faithful rich man who followed God and believed in him, Satan walks into the throne room of God and says, yeah, Job follows you, he trusts you, he worships you, but that's only because you coddle him. It's only because you've given him a good family and good kids and lots of wealth. What if those things were gone? Does he have an even though kind of faith to follow you if you were to take all of that away? 
And so our happy little sheep turns his attention to what happens when the shepherd leads him somewhere he'd rather not go. When the shepherd leads him away from the green pastures and the still waters and into the valley and the shadow of death itself. You know, we know from, from what we know of ancient Near Eastern shepherding uh, is that uh, sheep did not get to stay in one place all year. Right? That there were, a shepherd would have pasture, they would have their green pastures and their still waters, they'd have the home ranch, the home base, where they would keep the sheep. But sometimes they had to lead the sheep out on a journey. Sometimes maybe they had to go seeking other pastures, other places to feed. Or perhaps they had to go uh, to be sheared, or they had to go to market. So the case wasn't that if the shepherd uh, worked hard enough, he could provide perfect safety. Sometimes it took him leading the sheep out into difficult places, through valleys, through hard journeys. And the psalmist describes that as the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Friends, the truth is that life in this world is in many ways a journey through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? We live in a world that's broken. We live in a world that's flawed. We live in a world where there is evil that can be fearsome. You know, I, uh, I mentioned this uh, to some of you. I, uh, I was able to go on a vacation with my family last month. It was really wonderful. Uh, one of the places that we went is we took the kids out west. We did the Grand Teton, Yellowstone, and Glacier National Parks in Montana, and it was unreal. Um, for my kids who are, you know, city kids, to see that much open space was amazing. For a bunch of Flatlander Florida people who never get to see mountains, it was, it was overwhelming. For people who, you know, the most wildlife they get to see are the giant squirrels in our front yard, to see bison and bears and elk and deer, it was unreal. It, there were moments where it felt like paradise. Right? There were moments it felt uh, like we had re-entered Eden, seeing these beautiful mountain lakes and wildlife and enjoying my family. It was amazing. One day, we were driving through Yellowstone National Park, and an elk ran out in front of our car. And thankfully, it didn't hit uh, said elk, but it ran off, slammed on the brakes. And then after the elk came a grizzly bear running hard after that elk with ill intent in its eyes. And behind that grizzly bear came two adorable little bear cubs. You just looked like you could pick them up. You shouldn't, but you looked like, you know, adorable. And so the elk runs, everybody in the car, are we, like, are we about to see too much nature right now? Um, but the elk got away, turned around, the bear, you know, the mama bear, the cubs right there, and then all of a sudden, the mama bear looks up. She looks across the road and tears off across. She was as close to our car as the communion table is to me right now. And she tears off, and what they had done was separate uh, the elk from its fawn. Um, and I won't tell the rest of the story, but it was what happens. And so we, we drove on, hoping to prevent tears in the car. Friends, there is no re-entering Eden. There is no reclaiming of paradise. In this world, no matter how beautiful parts of it may be, death is everywhere. 
Death haunts even the best parts of our lives, right? We live literally in the valley of the shadow of death. We live aware of our own mortality. We live aware of the fragility of our own lives, our own health, our own families, our own relationships, our jobs. Life following our shepherd in this life isn't following our shepherd through the pastures of Eden. It's following him through the valley of the shadow of death. And so David here shows us how we can find an even-though kind of faith, the kind of faith that we need, the kind of faith that will hold on and find peace and trust in our shepherd, even when things are hard. For some of you, uh, this message will feel to be felt to land exactly where you are. Right? You know yourself to be suffering. You know uh, yourself to be in a difficult place where you need a shepherd to meet you right in the midst of the darkness. For others of you, things feel pretty good right now. And you can consider this uh, preparation for suffering to come. Because the reality, in this life, we're always either coming out of suffering or heading into suffering with moments of peace in between. I'm sorry, that is a rather pessimistic sentence to utter. Uh, but it's true, in this life, if you're not equipped to deal with hard, uh, hardship, then your life is in danger. Your soul is in danger. So let's look at what David finds in his shepherd in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. The first thing he finds is courage. He says, I will fear no evil. He's found a kind of courageous faith they can look at this world and say, I fear no evil. Now, fear, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I come to realize that there's nothing at all to fear. He doesn't say, I've come to realize that my situation isn't all that bad. No, he says, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Right? If you're waiting to find courage until there are no threats to your soul or to your life, we won't find it, right? We need a way to find peace and security in the midst of a world with very real evils. And so he says, I fear no evil. He's learned uh, that the God who walks with him as his shepherd is more powerful than any temptation or evil or suffering that he could face. He's learned what Paul says when Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? If I can be honest for a moment, I'll admit that I'm someone who struggles with fear. Uh, I'm someone who, who knows what it is to wrestle with anxiety. I'm the kind of person that when something's weighing on my mind, I can wake up at three in the morning and just start playing out next week and next month and next year's uh, problems in my mind and be unable to sleep. Anxiety for me comes up from fears of those things that are beyond my control, fears of the future, fears of failure, Fears of rejection. Anxiety can really, really play, uh, wreak havoc on our lives. Fear can grip us. Fear can grip me. And in the midst of this, a verse that has been an incredible comfort to me is from 1 John uh, chapter 2. After writing uh, the famous statement that God is love, John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love 
casts out fear, casts out worry, casts out anxiety. But if you're someone who struggles with fear, with, with fear and anxiety, the way to overcome it isn't to positively think your way out of it, to think that there, are no, there is nothing to fear. It's to have the experience of perfect love. It's to know that there's a love that holds on to you, that you cannot be taken from the Father's embrace, that you can't be taken even if uh, you suffer the worst failure that you can dream of suffering, even if you're embarrassed to the point that you can't imagine uh, ever being embarrassed, even if you're abandoned by those closest to you and rejected, that there's one who will never reject you, never cast you out, and holds you through all things. Perfect love to ground our hearts in perfect love is what overcomes and casts out our fears. That we have a love that we can't lose. Right? We have a love of a God who, instead of standing at a distance, as we, his flock, wander through the valley of the shadow of death, a God who, instead of looking through the valley and saying, oh, I hope they make it out okay, we have a God who entered into the valley of the shadow of death for us and with us. That Jesus wasn't content to sit at the Father's right hand and hope it all works out. But he came into our darkness, even into our death, taking it on himself so that we could know that he will walk with us, that he will hold on to us, that his perfect love has the power to drive out every single one of our fears. I will fear no evil. So David finds courage in the protection of his shepherd. Secondly, he finds protection in the care of his shepherd. Look at what he says. He says, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So he's here now talking about two practical tools that shepherds use to guide their flocks, the rod and the staff. When you think about the shepherd's rod, think about it like a club, basically. This is an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon, something that uh, a shepherd would use if his flock were attacked by external threats. What we, what we uh, know that they did more often than not was they took a, a small tree uprooted it, trimmed it off to about a club's length, and then took the root ball and trimmed it down so that it was still heavy and still had spikes and stuff on it, but they could wield it, they could hit with it, they could even throw it. Right? Not every shepherd was as good with a slingshot as David, but they all trained so they could get to where they could throw a club uh, if a wolf or a bear or some creature came after their flock. And so when David says that his rod is with him, that the rod of the shepherd is with him, what he's saying is, I have a shepherd who defends me. I have a shepherd who fights for me. I have a shepherd who's willing to enter into battle against those things that afflict me in the valley of the shadow of death. Therefore, I can fear no evil because my shepherd defends me. And friends, we can have the same confidence that Jesus is, for those who trust in him, he is a shepherd who defends us. I don't, if you're like me, when I think of Jesus as shepherd, I imagine the really bad 1970s airbrushed painting that hung on the Sunday school wall. Um, it's on the cover of, you, you know, if you go to the Hallmark store, you can find it on a gift card even now, right? It's kind of hippie Jesus with the long hair holding a little baby lamb on his shoulder, hazy light in the background. 
That's so, so sweet. And there is the shepherd metaphor. When we say Jesus is our good shepherd, there is a tenderness that comes with it. But a shepherd in the ancient world had to be willing to fight. A shepherd had to, it wasn't a safe job. It wasn't a job um, for people who just wanted to hug, cuddle with baby lambs all day. It was a job that took some courage. It was a job that took a willingness to step in between wild animals and your flock. And so we have a shepherd who is willing to fight. What did we just sing uh, in this morning's worship? The Lord is a warrior. Right? Jesus shows himself to be one who's willing to do battle with our enemies. Uh, our confession of faith. We have, uh, as a Presbyterian church, we have a group of doctrinal standards uh, that we use to, to shape and inform our faith and practice. Uh, the Westminster Confession and then the Westminster Catechisms. Uh, and catechisms are just a way of teaching the faith through question and answer. And one of the questions that's asked in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. This is number 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? So uh, the catechism is using uh, this way that Christian theologians have often talked about Jesus, that he has uh, three offices, that he's a prophet, a priest, and a king. So as a prophet, he brings truth into our lives, enlightening us and teaching us what God is like and what we're like. As a priest, he offers a sacrifice to bring us home to God and to, to give us communion with God. And as a king... What does he do? How does he rule as a king? And this is how the catechism answers that. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. That's beautiful. He, he, he subdues us to himself, right? His first battle that he fights is the battle for us. Right? It's the battle against our own sin and darkness and unbelief. And so he fights against that and wins us for himself through his death on the cross. And then he continues to fight. He rules us. He defends us. And one day, now he restrains and one day he will conquer all of his and our enemies. Everything that afflicts us in this life, our own sin, the sin of the world, injustice and death and brokenness. Jesus has defeated and will defeat all of those things. You know, there's a, um, I have a pet peeve, probably have more of them than is healthy, but one of them uh, is a way that Christians talk. Um, and it happens, it, it seems to come in a new cycle every few years. In the way that, it's a, it's a way of finishing this sentence. Blank is the greatest threat to the gospel in the world. You ever heard people talk about this? Like the sexual revolution of the 1960s or today's contemporary um, sexual license is the greatest threat to the gospel of our lifetimes. Or this social theory or that social movement is the greatest threat to the gospel. Friends, let me encourage you that there is no greatest threat to the gospel. Uh, there is no threat to the gospel, right? The greatest threat to the gospel, Revelation chapter 20 tells us, is bound in chains and kept on a leash. And one day he will be hurled into a lake of fire while Jesus makes all kingdoms his own. Amen. 
When Jesus tells his church, that's you and me, normal people like us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. He meant it. He is doing it. He will do it. And so, yes, there is reason to live with wisdom and sobriety. Every Christian in every generation ought to think about and be aware of what are the threats to my faith and my soul. We need to be shrewd and wise. But we should not for a moment think that Jesus uh, in his throne, in his gospel, in the movement of his kingdom is in any way threatened by any of these things. I mean, so I mentioned um, my, my pastor friend in Afghanistan a little while ago. And he's, I mean, I'll be honest, he's scared. He's worried about what's happening in his country. He's worried about what's going to happen to his family. But you know what he's never once said? That the Taliban is the greatest threat to the gospel. No, he, God has sustained them. He's held them and he will hold us and lead us because we are comforted by the rod of our shepherd who defends and fights our battles and who's already won the victory. So David looks and he finds protection, your rod. And then he says, your staff. And in the staff, he finds guidance. If the, if the shepherd's rod was a weapon, the shepherd's staff was used to guide the sheep. The shepherd's staff, if the club was made to hit attackers, the staff was made to keep the sheep from wandering away from the fold. Think about the, the shepherd's staff with the crook in it used to reach and grab and pull and direct and move. But the way that Jesus, our shepherd, guides us is both protecting us from our enemies and protecting us from ourselves. Right? That we need guidance. Because the reality is that the, the, the valley of the shadow of death isn't just something that exists out there. It also exists in here. Right? That we have minds and hearts that are darkened by sin and unbelief and foolishness. And we need someone not only to protect us from others, but someone to protect us from ourselves. Our own wandering hearts and minds. Let me ask you a question. Are you more scared of the darkness outside of you or the darkness inside of you? If, I, if I'm honest, I spend most of my time worrying about stuff that might happen to me. Right? It's most of the time worrying about what bad things in the world might befall me and those that I love. And if the main problems are in the world out there, then you'll never appreciate a shepherd who corrects and guides you. Right? It's not until you come to recognize that I need someone to guide me and to protect me from myself. Right? The biggest threat to my own life is me. Right? The greatest threat to my marriage is me. The greatest threat to my kids is me. When you recognize the danger that your sin poses to yourself and those around you, then you can receive guidance from a shepherd with a thank you. Until you do, you're only, you can't help but resent it, right? If your view is, I got it, you know, I'm the good one. I've got it basically figured out. And what I need is salvation from stuff out there. Then anytime you're corrected, anytime your sin is pointed out, you can't help but grow resentful of it. And if there's anything that marks the predominant world and life view of our age, right? It's that I know what's best for my own life. 
It's that, you know, the main purpose of my life is for me to express who I know myself to be, no matter what the world says, no matter what anybody else says. I've got to live my best life, my authentic life. And nobody can tell me otherwise. Nobody can constrain it. And into that world, David reminds us that God's, the, the shepherd's rod and his staff come with us. That we have a shepherd who wants to correct and guide us. Who wants to lead us through this world with all of its pitfalls. How does he do that? Well, he does it through his word, right? God speaks to us through his word, both words of comfort and words of challenge, right? If, you're, if your view of reading the Bible is that you, you know, you brew your coffee or your tea and you sit by the, sit in your comfiest chair and you open God's word and the only thing that comes to you is comforting feelings, then you're reading it wrong, right? We do go to God's word to be comforted. There is an incredible gospel promise on every page of the Bible pointing us to Jesus, but we also go to God's word to be challenged. We go to God's word to have a voice beyond us, cut through the noise of our lives and our world and speak to us. To have a wisdom beyond our own foolishness that can speak into us and correct us. As much as I want basically to get my own way and to be left alone in life, if I stop, I can't imagine anything scarier than living in a world where I'm the smartest one, the wisest one, the one who ultimately calls all the shots. No, you need some voice from beyond you that can steer you and correct you and change you. He directs us by his word. He directs us by his spirit, bringing conviction and guilt, you know, bringing conviction of sin into our hearts. That's not given to us to make us feel bad about ourselves or to, to hang our heads in shame. It's made to lead us to Jesus, to lead us to grace. And he corrects us through his church, right, through his people. For those of you who are members of the church, uh, you took a vow that, and quite honestly, is a little weird uh, if you hear it through the ears of our culture, that you promise to submit to the government and discipline of the church. That is a weird thing in a world that prizes individual autonomy above everything else. To take a vow that says, I need people in my life that I give permission to correct me, that I give permission to be a shepherd under Jesus' shepherding, to help me navigate life through the valley of the shadow of death. His word, his spirit, and the fellowship of his church guide us and direct us. And the final thing David finds is comfort. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David has come to know that he needs a shepherd. And he's come to be able to receive that shepherding with gratitude. To let it be not a source of offense or anger, but of comfort. Now, we know that David didn't come by this easy. Right? We know, if you know the story of David... Uh, there was a story where um, he saw a naked lady bathing on a roof, uh, and he told his soldiers, I want her, go get her, uh, and they did, and he took another man's wife, killed the man, took her as his own wife. And then God sent a prophet, Nathan, went to David, and he came to confront David with what he had just done. Now, I don't I don't respond well, typically, to my initial confrontation when somebody tells me what I've done. 
big or small, right? Um, I usually get defensive. I didn't load the dishwasher wrong, you know, things like that. Kings typically do it worse, right? Kings really don't like to be uh, confronted or have it pointed out when they did wrong. So Nathan comes and he tells them a story. So there's a man who had a lot of sheep, and he, there was another little poor man who only had one sheep, and he killed him and took the sheep. And David said, that man should be put to death. Remember the famous words of Nathan, you are that man. Right? It's you. You're the sinner, you're the guilty one. And David, to his credit, as a testimony to the spirit of Christ in his life, confessed. He repented. He turned back to God. So he became one who could then write your rod and your staff, your protection and your correction. They comfort me because I know the darkness within. I know that I need it. I know that before I'm a shepherd, I'm a sheep. Friends, if you want to be able to look to the one, to our shepherd who gives us peace, even in the valley of the shadow of death, we look to Jesus. We look to the one who didn't keep his distance, but entered into our shadow. There's this incredible verse in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd, and he shall guide them into fountains of waters of life, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. You notice what he sees. The lamb will be the shepherd. The shepherd will be the lamb. That Jesus isn't a shepherd who can't identify with what it's like to be a lamb. That when he was tried, even to the point of death, he didn't take up the shepherd's rod to defend himself. He didn't call down armies of angels. He kept silent before Pilate. He went willingly into the valley of the shadow of death so that we can know in our bones that he will walk us through whatever darkness this life brings. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, we confess to you that we don't always look to you for guidance through the darkness of this life. Often we prefer to think that we can manage it ourselves, that we can direct our own lives. Lord Jesus, help us to turn towards you, to receive your guidance and your correction with soft hearts, to look to you as our strength and our protection, Lord, that you would lead us by your word and by your spirit. Lord, I don't know uh, the particular shape that the dark valley takes in everyone's life in this room, but I know that we all know that darkness. And so, Lord Jesus, our shepherd, I pray that you would be near to each of us, that you would feed us, that you would secure us, that you would protect us and guide us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.